The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Welcome to Our Wild World. This is a program dedicated to information and discussions regarding the role and the need for saving our world's wildlife, specifically our carnivores and predators. What poor policies and poor management practices that remove these species from our landscapes and the consequences of this, which can lead to the loss of not just our predators, but as how biodiversity functions. Today, coyotes are on the top of my list. You know, the trickster, maker of myths and legends, from gods to cartoons, our American song dog. Well, its continued existence is our topic today, as we follow hot on the heels of the recent coyote killing contests and exposing the unethical and often brutal practices of our U.S. Department of Agriculture Wildlife Services. Today, my guests are wildlife and coyote experts, Camilla Fox and Robert Crabtree. Camilla is the executive director of Project Coyote, and for nearly two decades has worked as a consultant protecting our wildlife and wildlands in the U.S. and internationally. And you can visit more and learn more at projectcoyote.org. Bob Crabtree, our other guest, is, as since an early age, has been fascinated with the process of predation and prey. He is also the chief scientist at the Yellowstone Ecological Research Center in Bozeman, Montana, and is research associate professor in the Department of Ecosystem and Conservation Sciences at the Sciences at the University of Montana in Missoula. And he's the science advisor on the board at Project Coyote. Welcome, Camilla and Bob. Thank you. Wonderful to be on your show. Wonderful, Ellie. Thank you. I am so excited to have you here today. As listeners to Our Wild World know, this is one of my pet peeves, one of my rants, one of my topics, the loss of our wildlife and our, our carnivores. So, Camilla, maybe you could start us today. Um, you had written an excellent chapter in a book I've talked about before on this program, Ignoring Nature No More, and your chapter was Coyotes, Compassionate Conservation, and Coexistence. In the case of coyotes and other carnivores, why does ignoring nature lead to ineffective predator management, and how will we coexist with wildlife? Well, I think when you look historically at the way that we have treated coyotes and other predators in the U.S., it's one of um, misunderstanding, persecution, and prejudice 
And we really believe with Project Coyote that if we can shift the way we view and treat coyotes, we can shift the way we view and treat other predators, including wolves, bears, mountain lions, and really our, our relationship to wild nature. So compassionate conservation, which is the theme of this book and my, my chapter, is really a growing global movement that translates discussions and concerns about the well-being of individuals, species, and populations into action. And it's really about a paradigm shift in how we view nature. And it's one that centers on empathy, compassion, and being proactive. And that's really what Project Coyote is, is all about, is, is looking at education, science, and advocacy to shift the way we view and treat our relationship with predators. And this is really, really important. And as I said, the subject of many of our Wild World programs. And you brought up two really important points that I want to get back to later. Um, one is the coexistence and the persecution and living with wildlife. And uh, But in, in, a, in the moment, first, let's uh, get a little from Bob. Bob, you started working in Yellowstone after the fires of 19. 19- 1988, with your primary focus on predators and prey relationships. As a result of your work, experience, and research, you created some fundamental reforms um, in predator management and in Yellowstone. Why are coyotes important to you? And what? Let's start it there. Why are coyotes important to you? And why did you join Project Coyote? Well, thanks. Uh, coyotes are important to me for a lot of reasons. I've got a long history with them, having them studied them for about 30 years. But to me, they've just always been, in my book, uh, probably the most intelligent species on Earth. It's got an incredible evolutionary history. In fact, they're quite the masterpiece. So I figured if I could be lucky enough to study coyotes, I could maybe really learn something special about the species and about the ecosystems in which they, they live. And as far as Project Coyote, I've been, uh, you know, obviously involved in research for a large part of my life, and uh, even at a young age. And uh, I met Camilla about 16 years ago in Yellowstone National Park, and then we were involved in a documentary a few years ago, and uh, she asked me to be on the board. And I, I, I watched my time close, and I, I have to be honest here, um, I, uh, I chose Project Coyote is a, a national NGO because they really have these three pillars, education, science, and advocacy. And, and because they're science-based, I decided that this was, this was the organization to uh, become involved with because of their effectiveness. That's incredible to hear and really makes me happy um, today in sense of project and science and research-based, which so much of our carnivore and wildlife management has not been based on. So um, I had not realized that you and Camilla have known each other for so long and have been working together for so long. So how? let's hear from both of you why coyotes are important not only to our larger ecosystem, because they are everywhere across North America um, and perhaps elsewhere, you can tell me, but within the national park system. Um, Camilla, why don't you start? Well, just looking at the, the, the specialness and uniqueness of the coyote, um, unlike wolves and foxes that exist on other continents, the coyote is really unique to North America and truly our native song dog. So when we look at the, the aspects and facets of this species, um, it's, it's rich 
And it's why I chose the coyote as our icon species for Project Coyote, because they are our native song dog. And because there's so much historical myth and lore as well with Native Americans. And when we look at their history on this continent, fossil evidence from the La Brea Tar Pits in California to New Brunswick, Maryland, we see that this species has existed on this continent since before the Pleistocene. So there's so many aspects to learn about evolution, about resiliency, about adaptability from the species. And they're ubiquitous now. They exist in our national parks. They exist pretty much in every urban city in North America. So we have much to learn from, from this iconic species, and that's one of the reasons why we chose the coyote as our flagship ambassador. What I liked about what you said in your in your opening statement there was that the coyote, Project Coyote chose the coyote for what seems to me a very important reason. It is sort of a liaison, a crossover, uh, a carnivore and a predator that we're all kind of familiar with. Let's say like the jackal in Africa that perhaps is a way, uh, a less, a more innocent way and maybe less confrontational way to get people to understand carnivores moving towards wolves, which is a huge topic these days. Would you, would you say that's an appropriate way to look at that? Absolutely. When we look at the coyote and its presence in our midst, I mentioned that they now exist in almost every populated urban area. We have such an opportunity to learn about the role of predators with this um, this predator that now functions as a keystone predator in many of our areas where wolves have been extirpated. So the many lessons to be learned about the ecology, about adaptability, um, they're 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 endless from the species, and I and I do think that they they exist in this kind of um, this. Coyotes in our midst, you know, when we think about um, this predator that sort of moves in and out of our urban areas and when we see them often um, at dusk and uh, in, at night, it's, it's this species that sort of speaks to us in this almost Native American mythical way. Um, so I think, I think there are many lessons to, to be learned and I think there's also lessons to be learned in how we can and should coexist with the larger carnivores, such as wolves that are coming back, um, but also face the similar kinds of persecution and prejudice that coyotes face. Oh, you, you mentioned a, a, an interesting point, the myths of the, the myth of the coyote in the urban situation. There's that film Collateral uh, with Jamie Foxx and Tom Cruise, where there's this really poignant moment in the middle of the morning and a coyote crosses the street at like 4 a.m. And it just still brings goosebumps to me right now that we have this carnivore, this elusive animal who is not necessarily so shy, but one we take for granted really living amongst us. So that brings me to you, Bob, um, and a, a point that Camilla mentioned. What happened with coyotes in Yellowstone after the wolves were removed? And I guess on counterpoint, since they've come back. Um, well, they uh, obviously were hit pretty heavy the first uh, few years by uh, by mortality inflicted by wolves and historical, you know, information and data suggests that there were a lot of coyotes in probably the the, 
the reason we can all point to while things, one of the reasons things are out of balance in Yellowstone is because we removed wolves. We, we killed them all. We removed all the mountain lions that kind of returned on their own. We killed thousands of coyotes at the turn of the century in Yellowstone, but could not remove them. So once wolves are returned, the things are much more in balance. There's actually fewer coyotes and uh, a lower population of elk. And, and you can argue that as simple as it sounds, things are much more balanced and healthy in Yellowstone. And then coyotes have learned to adapt to, um, to the situation there. But if you think about it, it's really not that big of a deal for coyotes because they're so resilient. I mean, here's a species that evolved with gray wolves and dire wolves and all kinds of other large carnivores from the Pleistocene that, that inflicted mortality upon them. So, you know, when you think about it, what Wildlife Services does to try to control coyotes is they're really very ineffective at it because of all the lessons that coyotes have learned from their uh, – they're uh, big cousins the past 100,000 years. Well, that brings me to a couple of really interesting points. There's so much information here, and there's a lot of overlaps. Um, we'll get into wildlife services in a minute because I want to lead up to that because it's really important. But you just man- mentioned, Bob, you know, the coyote killing, the mowing of the lawn, and uh, removing coyotes on a massive scale. Camilla, on your um, Facebook and Project Coyote, you have posted a lot, and I have too about the recent Coyote killing, is it, I always pronounced it coyote growing up in Wyoming, but coyote or coyote killing contests. Um, As Bob, as you just said, it's ineffective to mow these animals down because they're so um, good at living within their habitat and their landscape. So tell us why it is coyote management on that kind of a scale, and then we're going to get into wildlife services. Why is it ineffective? Well, the work I've done and, and quite a few others, including Wildlife Services' own research, clearly shows that the uh, mow the grass or mow the lawn model is ridiculous. There is no scientific basis. There's no biological common sense basis for it. It's basically a justification to go out and preemptively, uh, indiscriminately kill a lot of coyotes. And so there's about 20 different things that coyotes do to respond to that, to compensate for that mortality. And they never get the offending individuals. And even if they're lucky enough to do that, they're replaced. The old Hank the Cowdog saying is, kill one coyote and two come to its funeral. Well, that, that, that sounds a little crude, but you know what? It's scientifically right on. In fact, data shows that um, this indiscriminate uh, killing and removal of coyotes um, actually makes the problem worse and can result in more depredations, that is, more, more lambs killed on a ranch. So it's just... Um circular the more we try and remove this predator the more we're actually helping it adapt become more resilient breed more and cause more problems so it's actually just shifting the problem from one place to another from one let's say agriculture to wildlife to landscape conservation it's not really helping anything Agreed. I mean, ecologically, they cannot justify what they're doing, period. And they know it. Ethically, it's pretty obvious that there's no justification for that. And economically, which has a science component too, um, they need to um, uh, bear the burden of proof to justify this economically. And when you do full cost accounting on the value of predators in uh, maintaining ecosystems, it's also unjustifiable. So for those three reasons, ecology, economics, and ethics, 
any one of them would invalidate the MOLA, the MOLA grass model. And yet all three of them together, it's just, it's, it's really hard to believe that this machine keeps rolling on and on and on for decades without um, reform. Well, then let's get into this. How can this machine, our U.S. federally funded, taxpayer dollar funded, state sanctioned, incentivized, um, secretive agency, how can it conti- how does it continue to operate if, if it's not science-based and what they're doing over these decades isn't working, how is it allowed? How is it managing to keep on going? Well, I'll, I'll pipe in here and say that unfortunately, largely this, this organ, this agency has functioned behind a veil of secrecy and they've been around since 1931 and even before 1931 under different um, names and auspices. In 1931, Congress passed the Animal Damage Control Act, which essentially codified the federal government's involvement in predator control and authorized the Secretary of Agriculture to control predators and other animals deemed a pest, particularly for ranchers and agriculturalists. What that's translated to is approximately 100,000 predators, native predators, being killed each year at taxpayer expense. And of that 120,000, about 70 to 80,000 are coyotes. And really, this, this, as you mentioned at the beginning, is a vicious cycle because we know through the decades of research that this kind of indiscriminate control is ineffective. Take ethics away, take economics away. It's just ineffective. And yet, our federal government continues to pursue the same course using these indiscriminate lethal tools such as snares, poisons, aerial gunning, leg hole traps. And really, it's about bread and butter. They don't, they don't unfortunately, want to shift their ways, or at least they're not showing that they want to shift their ways, even though there has been tremendous public pressure to do so and congressional pressure And so it's one of the things that uh, Project Coyote and a number of conservation groups are working together to try to reform this agency, try to bring accountability and transparency to what they're doing. Okay, you just brought up a whole lot in the whole second half of this show. Right now, if our listeners, if you're wondering why we're losing our wildlife and, and our carnivores and our predators at such an unprecedented rate, Please stay tuned. We're going to cut away for a short little break, and we'll be right back with Camilla Fox and Bob Crabtree. Save on your prescriptions with the RX Savings Plus drug discount card offered by Voice America. It is not insurance, and discounts are only available from participating pharmacies. But 9 out of 10 pharmacies participate nationwide. Start saving today. Print your free card online at voiceamerica.rxsavingsplus.com or text the word TALK RADIO to 96362. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all. 
and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back to Our Wild World with our guest experts and coyote um, uh, storytellers and coyote uh, experts. I pronounce it coyote, they pronounce, or I pronounce it coyote, they pronounce it coyote. We have Camilla Fox and uh, Bob Crabtree. So right before the break, Camilla, you had mentioned a whole lot of issues. The, the coyote is misunderstood. It's persecuted, both, and you too, Bob, um, that it's being removed at unprecedented rates from our landscapes and it's not working, and that the federal agency that is in control of this and has been for decades, Wildlife Services, is um, run amok. It's, it's rogue. It's spending our tax dollars and um, killing millions of our animals. Camilla, right before the break, you, you said some numbers. Um, I think in your chapter in Ignoring Nature No More, you had mentioned in 2010, 5 million animals alone to the tune of our, of our wildlife in the U.S. to the tune of $126 million. How can we as American citizens, taxpayers, and people who have a voice in this and our government, um, how can we conscience this happening and what can we do to stop it? Well, thankfully, there is movement around this issue, and I give great kudos to a reporter, investigative reporter with the Sacramento Bee named Tom Knudsen, and he did a four-part featured cover story series on this agency uh, in the Sacramento Bee that's available online called The Killing, Killing Agency, and he really exposed the dirty deeds of wildlife services and the lack of transparency, the lack of accountability, the huge numbers of animals killed. I mentioned, uh, you mentioned in my chapter, 5 million animals. Even beyond that, that's the target species, at least 50,000 non-target animals representing over 150 species since 2000 have been killed. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. So his series helped to catapult this issue to national attention. It also resulted in members of Congress calling for an investigation and an audit into wildlife services. And thankfully, 
the federal government has announced that they are going to do an audit of wildlife services. We hope that that will help to expose some of what goes on and really to shift and reform this agency. And you asked, what can people do? Well, certainly one thing that people can do is is write to their members of Congress and express their concerns and let them know that they don't want their tax dollars spent killing native wildlife and that they'd like to see, uh, you know, if, if this agency is going to persist, to shift to non-lethal and shift to actually recognizing the importance of predators and the importance of coexistence. So this brings me to a question. Um, you had said Wildlife Services started out as an agency called Animal Damage Control. So we do have livestock. We do have ranchers um, working and grazing on our public lands, which is one issue. And then we have them grazing on private lands, which is another. Both are bringing in wildlife services to wipe out carnivores that are in conflict with livestock. So um, what is the ecological role of the coyotes on our wild lands, which is one thing, and private lands where, it, let's say, it's geared toward livestock. What is the coyotes' importance into the, into the ecosystem, the benefits and services that they provide for us that we may not be aware of and that killing them off like this is, um, can harm? Well, great question, and it's one of the, the key issues is that we don't value the ecological services that coyotes and other predators provide. And that's a, a great disservice that we do to wildlife, particularly to predators that have a pivotal ecological role in maintaining ecosystem health and resilience. So some of the roles that coyotes play, for example, they are great rodent controllers. And uh, it's estimated that in a given year, a coyote can control um, 1,800 or more rodents. So we see a lot more ranchers recognizing this important role that they play. You know, whether it's gophers or ground squirrels, rabbits, they provide that ecological service. So that's they part also, of what Project Coyote is doing in terms of communities and working with ranchers is is working to find non-lethal ways of dealing with predation with ranchers and livestock managers. And in some of uh, what are some of the effects of some of your projects? Well, for example, we have a, a program here in Marin County that started as a as um, actually controversy around this very agency that we're talking about, Wildlife Services. And it was back in 1996 when Marin County, which is just north of San Francisco, learned that Wildlife Services was going to be testing a very deadly poison called Compound 1080, which is used in a livestock protection collar to kill coyotes and other predators. And when we learned about this, we did more investigation about the agency behind it, learned that Wildlife Services under USDA was the agency that was going to test this poison and was, in fact, already killing many native carnivores here in Marin, including bobcats, foxes, coyotes, badgers, at taxpayer expense, largely at the behest of ranchers. So... A coalition was formed, and um, our board of supervisors directed our ag commissioner to have discussions between uh, the ranching community and the conservationists to see if there was some common ground to be found. 
And essentially, the uh, the coalition and and the roundtable identified um, several areas of common interest, including a recognition that agriculture is important important to this community, a recognition that we value wildlife, and a recognition that wildlife services really wasn't working for this community because they were very much using indiscriminate tools that were also removing uh, non target animals. So the long and short is that we took that money that formerly went to pay a federal trapper and we took that and used it towards a cost share program that is now in its 14th year. It's called the Marin Livestock and Wildlife Protection Program and it's been enormously effective and we gauge efficacy by reduction in uh, um, livestock losses and According to our county ag commissioner, livestock losses have decreased from about 5% to 2.2%. And our county embraces it. It's a, a program that, that honors and recognizes the importance of native carnivores and also recognizes the importance of agriculture to our community. Um, that's incredible. That's an amazing program, and I'm hoping that it will take off more nationally, that you have plans to do that. Once again, our audience can find out more about these projects by visiting www.projectcoyote.org. So, Bob, I, we haven't heard from you for a little bit. Um, and going back to predator control and an, problem animals, there this is a real issue with livestock and ranchers. I'm not going to negate that there is an issue with predation. There is a lot of money at stake. Camilla and Bob, you both mentioned economics before. One is the economics of um, a corporate system and industry, and one is the economics in terms of the services our planet provides for us. So outside of dealing with recognized or legitimate animal control, um, and especially in the national park, what is the difference between dealing with animal control and animal damage control in wildlands, pristine wildlands that we recreate in that should be filled with wildlife and our national parks versus these private and urban landscapes? Well, in my career, both uh, outside and inside Yellowstone Park, and I've been in Yellowstone now for 25 years doing these long-term studies on predator-prey systems, you know, it's just a wonderful, wonderful model of how things should be. Because if you don't understand how coyotes operate naturally and coexisting with their prey species and coexisting with their enemies and competitors, other carnivores, then you really can't craft successful strategies. So, for example... Um, of the Marin model that um, Camilla was talking about, which, by the way, was a research project of hers as a grad student. Um, you know, that, that's, we wouldn't know what to do there if we didn't understand the behavior of the coyote and, and incorporate science. So what, what we've been learning in Yellowstone is that, um, you know, the coyote has this incredible role being a predator at the top of the food chain. And pound for pound, species by species, things at the top, in a way, are more important than other species lower in the food chain because there's many more of those and they overlap each other in their function. So on top of that, you've got what scientists are now seeing as the key to ecosystem stability, that is to keep plant animal communities from collapsing. You need something called an adaptive forager. So in other words, when there's something wrong or something's missing, 
uh, a species like the coyote, which is probably the best example of an adaptive forager in the world, <clears throat> it can switch from one prey to another. So to keep things in balance. So learning these kinds of lessons, including how wolves manage coyotes naturally, we take those concepts and ideas from natural areas that's the more evolutionary significant situation, and we transfer that to successful coexistence strategies, which is precisely what Project Coyote is doing. That's why the Marin model worked, and that's why it can work across the West and really across the world. So what is the crux between and, and why the Marin County Project works so well? What was the crux when you bring all these these groups to the table and we start talking about common needs and where things fall apart and try to bring them together. What is the crux between the human coyote interaction? Why are they so reviled now as such a pest and being killed off in such numbers when, as Camilla said earlier, our mythology is so full of the coyote as a needed um, part of our not only culture, but our ecosystem. So there, there's a real disconnect here. How did this happen? How did the coyote become the most persecuted predator in North America today? Well, well when you look at our history... I'd, I'd uh, like to hear from both of you, Camilla and Bob. Absolutely. When you look at how this country was colonized, back in the 1600s when European settlers came over to North America, they viewed the, the wolves, the mountain lions, the bears that they encountered on the eastern seaboard as a threat, both to livestock and to the species that they hunted for game. And that that misunderstanding, that prejudice, persecution has been the dominant mantra of our relationship with predators on this continent since European colonization. And they really didn't encounter the coyote until the 1800s. And they, when they first encountered coyotes in the Great Plains, they viewed them similar to, to the other large carnivores as a threat. And they called the coyote a prairie wolf, and as with the other predators, they were persecuted. And that same attitude that was also what led to our extirpation of many Native American tribes, that same attitude of, of persecution, fear of what we don't understand, what we don't know, that has been the mantra of our, our relationship with these Native carnivores. So I think that's the unfortunate persistence of, of how we have dealt with coyotes, wolves, mountain lions, and it's why we have extirpated so many of these species throughout their historic range. The coyotes have filled in those vacancies and truly is, is I hate to say it, but the bread and butter in many ways of wildlife services. And they incentivize counties to contract with them. So, you know, you asked about the Marin model and the differences the, this federal agency incentivizes counties to contract with them by giving a matching fund to help pay for these federal trappers. So it's very hard for a community to kind of extricate themselves from this relationship. And that's why it's been very hard to, to develop these alternative models and promote them nationally. So it really is, and Bob, I want to I want to hear from you. So it really is important that we, as American citizens, get on top of this issue and understand 
why we need our wildlife, why wildlife services needs to be um, checked and balanced. Not that there is no need for animal control or problem animal control. But, Bob, um, coyotes are smart, intelligent, clever. You've said that. We've called them the trickster. They've known, been known to work in coalitions and packs and to deceive and devise ways to get their prey. Um, in, in a national park system, they can do this without the presence of humans. So what should a human do when one encounters a coyote? Let's say they're walking their small pet. And we've heard we've heard how coyotes will attack pets on leashes. What should a person do when they encounter a coyote? Well, I think that uh, you know uh, Project Coyotes really championed that, so I think that's a, a better question for Camilla. But basically, you have to understand, you know, the, the the evolutionary history of the coyote, the current behavior of the coyote, and how we've changed it with this massive campaign of persecution and killing the last uh, 150 years. And also just uh, won't, you know, keep record on what works and what doesn't. So how does that affect the, does wildlife services come in and kill coyotes in our uh, national parks? Or does it work there? Or, you know, what's that relationship? And how does um, killing off masses of them affect the ecosystems within a national park, which of course has boundaries and you step outside the park? How does that uh, all connect? Well, the, um, I mean, I, from what I understand, and again, I think Kimmel has got the best records on this, you know, a county or a state or a federal agency can request the services of wildlife services. So they're actively out there, you know, doing their thing on a lot of federal lands. Now, I don't know that it occurs in national parks, but it might have. So, but, um, Camilla, help, help me understand. Yeah. What I'm hearing here is we have a federal agency, which is funded by federal funds, which is our tax dollars, on public lands, and yet I'm also hearing, as Bob just said, on private lands, livestock or industry can hire wildlife services. Isn't that kind of double dipping? Uh, many believe so. Yes. Um, unfortunately they do, they do carry this out on our public lands as well. Thankfully our national parks are protective of most wildlife species. So we don't see this kind of indiscriminate predator control on national parks in general. However, other federal lands, including forest service lands, Bureau of land management lands, uh, there is um, a lot of predator con- control that goes on on these public land systems in addition to the private private lands. So it is something where the relationship is complex between wildlife services and their cooperators. And it's, it's something where, as I mentioned, the uh, series that Tom Knudsen did is, is getting out there more in terms of our, <clears throat> our expenditure of taxpayer money supporting this on our public lands. And many of us believe, conservationists, that the first place that we should be looking at is eliminating this kind of indiscriminate control on our public lands. And when we look at the public um, trust doctrine, really, you know, our wildlife is held in the public trust for all Americans. So we, we should be examining our relationship with how we treat predators on, on our public lands, and we should be asking questions about how we can do it better. Well, that's an excellent point. You know, this is in trust. We are the public trust, and wildlife is 
um, for all of us. We face the same issue in Africa, and if the difference here is we do get incentives and we do get benefits economically from our wildlife, and we could go into a whole other tangent between hunting concessions and national parks and all of that, but we're going to have to sort of leave that for another conversation, and we're heading into a break. So um, what I'm hearing is that there are non-lethal alternatives for the livestock uh, husbandry industry and ranchers to protect their livestock. And Project Coyote is working on some of those. So I'd like to get into that a little bit after the break. So stick with us. We're with Camilla Fox of Project Coyote, uh, Project Coyote, and that's projectcoyote.org. And Bob Crabtree, who is one of the scientists and coyote experts at the Yellowstone National Bar. I'm sorry, Yellowstone National Park. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. We're with Camilla Fox and Bob Crabtree, coyote experts, talking about coyotes, wildlife services, and why we should care about what's happening on our public lands and our private lands and why we need the coyote. So, Camilla, before the break, we were talking about wildlife services and how these agencies contract with their, I think you called it, cooperators. What a a great word. um, To massively kill 
the coyote, which is, you know, in terms of per, uh, persecution, I'd say it's even more persecuted right now than the wolf. So what are, you had mentioned some of the state actions, and recently there were these coyote killing contests, abhorrent, appalling, um, and what's their point? Tell us about this. Well, unfortunately, coyotes, like many predators, are not protected at all by our state wildlife agencies. So it's not just our federal government that's persecuting these animals. Our state governments are also persecuting in that they they do not classify them with any kinds of protections. So, for example, in California, coyotes are classified as a non-game mammal, which essentially allows them to be killed 24-7 with almost any method imaginable. California is not unique. Most states do not protect coyotes at all, and many other predators as well, including bobcats, foxes, also frequently classified as non-game so that they can be killed in unlimited numbers. So this translates to persecution through bounties, contests, killing wildlife killing contests, and unfortunately, these are not monitored by our state agencies. So we really have no idea how many of these killing contests are happening nationally. We know, though, that hundreds are happening. Uh, we know this from various lists um, and and publications put out by uh, hunting groups that um, promote these kinds of things. And And I also want to differentiate that the, the predator killing contests that take place where coyotes, foxes, bobcats are killed for prizes and inducements and truly as sort of family fun, it's a, it's a very big difference between uh, problem animal control. Of, well, and, 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 and other kinds of hunting. So, you know, we're trying to differentiate between hunting for subsistence, and hunting purely for fun and prizes, which wildlife killing contests are. This is an extremely important point, and I'm really glad you brought it up. So we have our Endangered Species Act, which a lot of us citizens presume protects our wildlife. It doesn't protect all of our wildlife. As Camilla just said, many of our charismatic megafauna are carnivores, the big cats, um, the small cats, uh, the, the mesocarnivores are not protected. They're not endangered. So therefore, it's a free-for-all on killing them. And this is part of the legislation, don't you think, that should be changed? I'm not necessarily saying it lists them as endangered because obviously they're not. But how can we reform as citizens that there should not be open season on our megafauna like there is right now? Well, we believe that's one of the first areas that needs reform is looking at how we treat predators, whether that's coyotes, wolves, bobcats, foxes. And the first course of business is to get rid of those practices that we know violate ethical standards, ecological standards, and certainly wildlife killing contests and bounties fall under that. So we are actually leading an effort in California right now to try to prohibit wildlife killing contests. We have a fish and game commission that we think recognizes the importance of, of uh, predator reform as and actually engaged in the process right now to review our policies and regulations and try to bring them up to current scientific standards. And so we are pressing for, first and foremost, a ban on these 
brutal wildlife killing contests. And I'm really and, glad. I'm, I'm glad for that. It's an, it, I'm astonished with the information that you gave me. And I'm pretty well aware of what's going on with wildlife, but I am still absolutely astonished. So I, that leads me to a question. Uh, before you had mentioned and your chapter in Ignoring Nature No More, that we are giving credence to individual animals, uh, the animal mind, that they do have a right to exist, animal rights. But there is a, a big contention and a, I'm not going to call it a controversy per se, but certainly a challenge between large landscape conservation, such as what you do, Bob, in Yellowstone, versus species survival, versus um, killing off predators to this, um, to this extent. How do we reconcile the killing that we're going to have to do in terms of problem animal control and large landscape species survival versus uh, the animal mind and killing animals as individuals. It's, it's a tough one. Bob? Yeah, I, I think that, that is a great question. I think it has to do with a lot of, you know, what is our role as ecologists <clears throat> and, and what is the role of, of uh, management agencies to, and it really is to be stewards of the landscape, all species. So I think the key here is um, the main mantra of Project Cody, and that's coexistence. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think that's evolving, but we've got to take a hard look at both the ecological side and the social side, the human dimension side. And we've essentially got to take a look at the facts, the data. We've got to you know, sit down at the table like uh, uh, Pamela and the folks in Marin County did. The stakeholders were assembled. And we've got to collaborate, not just try to cooperate, but collaborate, meaning we've got to seek a compromise. We've got to gather around the table, look at the data and the facts and what's in common between all the stakeholders there, and then go, okay, what do we know about the past, the mistakes, like of killing the same number of coyotes every year, year after year after year after year? Well, that tends to suggest that things aren't working. It's really just job security for wildlife services. And then we have to go, what other alternatives do we have? And if you look closely at that, that's going to lead us to what uh, is rightfully called a coexistence strategy, where people, wildlife, uh, both wild prey and domestic livestock, and predators can all coexist if we're willing to, uh, again, sit down at the table and look at the facts and the data and work together. I'd say that's probably the best answer to that question I've ever received, so I thank you for that. Um, it, bring, it brings to mind Carter Niemeyer's point that this is no longer really a uh, biological or political issue. It's a societal issue that do we as people, as humans, want to live with wildlife and with carnivores? And I guess right there is the $64,000 question. So we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I'd like to ask a couple more questions. And we don't have to spend a lot of time on this one in particular, but um, there's been a lot of hubbub lately about this, quote unquote, new wild animal naturally occurring, the koi wolf. Uh, I think it's a mix of an eastern wolf and a western coyote and that it's um, very much back east. What do you think caused that? How do you think it happened? And what do you think its future is? Because it's unique. I mean, there's a lot of um, enjoyment about the species. Well, on the same hand, there's persecution of the coyote. Either Bob or Camilla. 
humility? Well, <laughs> so I think I think what we're learning with the research that's going on, ongoing research looking at the canids on the East Coast, is that we don't know a whole lot. What we do know is that we're, we're witnessing evolution in the canid world, and um, really what, what it is is canid soup back there with western coyotes interbreeding with eastern wolves and and this raises huge management implications because hybrids are not recognized by the US Fish and Wildlife Service as protected under the Endangered Species Act so even if a, a species a specimen has 80% wolf genes and 20% coyote genes they're not protected uh, under the the Endangered Species Act so not only do we have ecological questions with, with what species we're dealing with back there, but we also have tremendous management questions and implications. So this is, this is really a huge, huge issue. And I hope uh, our Wild World listeners that we understand that this is something we really need to be paying attention to. There is a lot of excitement and furor going on about the charismatic megafauna of Africa and other countries, tigers, polar bears, elephants, lions. But what's happening to our very own charismatic species? Um, Bob would be very familiar because this is what we go to our national parks and into our BLM and wildlands and national forests in hopes of seeing wildlife. So if we continue to remove it on such a mass scale with an agency that is out of control, what will be the implications, Bob, to um, our landscapes without, without getting an, org- an agency like Wildlife Services under control and the loss of these carnivores? I well, guess we uh, call it the trophic, the trophic cascades, the trophic levels. What, what, what will happen? Well, exactly like what I was explaining earlier. Um, you know, things at the top of the food chain have an inordinately large or catalyst role compared to other species further down that replace one another because there's so many of them. This concept of ecological redundancy, and and like Camilla mentioned, when we move into a continent, one of the first things we do is vilify the competitors of the enemies and attempt genocide. So the large carnivores, you know, get wiped out and we've already have evidence uh, that we've essentially caused massive irreversible state change in many of the ecosystems across the United States and across the world by just removing the large carnivores. Essentially, you can have system collapse. Truly again, irreversible? In many cases, yes, especially when we replace that with an unnatural function. For example, you remove carnivores and their prey, and you replace it with domestic livestock where there's no natural predators. And so there's perpetuation of disease. Things become completely out of balance. We've got, you know, for example, cattle overgrazing riparian areas. And there's just dozens of examples of, of how we've engineered ecosystems in the wrong way. And these are ecosystems that have evolved for millions of years under certain rules that we're just beginning to understand. And so uh, uh, the only road back is, is smart coexistence strategies that are based on <clears throat> ecological law and common sense. So we can restore these systems back to their state. And in some cases, it, it, unfortunately, it is irreversible or it's, or, or it's so expensive that even if we did have the funds to do it right, millions and millions of dollars, it may never be the same. The but hope is that there's a lot of systems that can be restored. 
But if we turn some of these millions of dollars that we are wasting on something like funding wildlife services, which is also double dipping into large livestock ranching industries, if we were able as a citizens to reform, ask Congress to reform wildlife services, make it accountable and move that money, would there be a possibility to uh, reinvest in the habitat to re to make to turn this irreversible tide around absolutely in fact camilla is leading a um, a group of 12 ngos in meeting with uh, the uh, department of agriculture in washington dc for that very reason is looking for reform and yes absolutely there is not just the dollars that could be effectively spent but it's absolutely reforming wildlife services to, to do the right thing, to essentially completely adopt non-lethal methods that are proven cost-effective, that reduce depredations, and actually use the principles of, of, of ecosystem restoration as part of the non-lethal tools that Camilla was describing. So the answer is just as plain as nose on, uh, uh, on your face. Well, this is, this is fascinating. Um, I, it's been an incredible conversation because, A, it it uh, makes me feel good that there uh, are people out there that are doing what you're doing. Uh, this is a pet peeve, a pet project, a pet uh, whatever you want to call it of mine is saving our wildlife around the world in the U.S. and getting people to participate and understanding why it's important. So you can find our listeners, you can find out more about Project Coyote and their projects and the effectiveness that they're having in non-lethal uh, measures to work with coyotes and, and ranchers and people and urban communities at projectcoyote.org. Uh, you can certainly look up Bob Crabtree, Robert Crabtree, and find out a whole lot more about his work and his background and what he does with Yellowstone and why this is such a great partnership between Project Coyote and Bob Crabtree. So it would be exciting, uh, both of you, to be able to follow up after this meeting in Washington. And I'd love to have you back if you're interested to learn more about what we can do and uh, reorganizations that may be happening. And is there any, um, we've got maybe one minute left. Is there a takeaway you would like our listeners to have today? Well, I'd like to just say, too, that we haven't mentioned the the um, economic value of predators. And I think if we look at since reintroduction of wolves in Yellowstone, the absolute draw of, of wolves for people, people from across the globe that come to Yellowstone to see these wolves. And, and if we recognize this value that predators have to our ecosystems, to our, to our psyches, I think that we could really foment this, this paradigm shift, and that's what we ultimately hope to do. We do believe that people's voices and public involvement is essential here. We encourage people to go to our website. We have action alerts. We have an e-team for people to express their voice and, and, and start this dialogue and create this change. 
Excellent. I appreciate that. This has been fabulous information. I do really hope to follow up with you. And for our listeners, when you step out into our wild world today, take a look around and remember all the things that make our wild world function. It's not just about us. It's about every living thing. So thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you again next week on Our Wild World. This is Ellie Weiss. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.